So I, I love the ordinary spaces because we are all having these opportunities to intersect with people all day long. And it's an opportunity to speak up. And yes, we have to pick our battles. Yes, we have to use boundaries. Yes, we have to be wise. I'm not saying don't do all of those things. But what I'm saying is you have a voice, you have authority, you have opportunity. And so in your ordinary space, figure out what it looks like for you to be brave. And nobody will probably see most of the things that you do. And good for you because we're not doing this for to be on social media and have everybody notice us. Like justice is not a trend. It is the heart of God. <laughs> so we have to journey past, you know, this sort of trend mentality and figure out in my ordinary space, how am I going to stand up and speak up for people who are going through difficult things right now? Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, culture, and mental health, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. We understand that the views shared here are respectively held by each individual and is not a substitute for professional care or an alternative to seeking personal help from a clinician or provider and is ours to discern. So sit with us. You're listening to episode 31. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. We are just diving right back into the conversation of race justice in the church, but this time we're flipping it over and we're talking about what allyship looks like in this space for non-black friends, family, allies in the church and in the world, and what it looks like to approach an issue that can be uh, sometimes divisive, that can be hard to talk about, uh, that can be difficult to bring up or even kind of stir the pot depending on what community you're in and how open they are to this conversation and what it looks like to reconcile and approach racial justice from the heart of the gospel. And so I was thinking, who better to have this conversation with than my friend Ashley Abercrombie? We go back years back serving in ministry together in inner city Los Angeles, just in a very diverse church where she oversaw uh, community outreach and was very involved in the community in a multicultural community and advocating just basic needs and rights for those in Los Angeles. So In this episode, Ashley shares a little bit more about her insight and perspective on approaching these issues. So I thought it would be great to have another additional perspective uh, to this issue coming from someone who has really actually put in the groundwork uh, within the community and in the church. Ashley Abercrombie is a writer and speaker and author of Rise of the Truth Teller, Own Your Story, Tell It Like It Is, and Live with Holy Gumption. For more than 15 years, she's worked in nonprofit spaces, leading faith-based initiatives, serving as a prison chaplain and pastor, speaking at conferences, churches, and events, and she's co-host of the hilarious and helpful podcast, Why Though?, and lives in Los Angeles with her husband, two sons, and baby girl. Ashley is a good friend of mine, and I've always admired the work she's done um, within our church, within her own spaces, and how she's grown over the years. And this is a very dynamic conversation, so without further ado, we're going to dive right in. Here is my conversation with Ashley. Hey, Ashley. It's so great to have you on the podcast. I'm This conversation, I feel like, is overdue. I feel like it's a mix between a catch-up and... Obviously, we have a dynamic topic today, but how are you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm so excited to be here with you. It's been a long time coming. I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> I know. I know. So so a little quick background here. Ashley and I, um, we went to the same home church years ago. Mm-hmm. This was before you and Cody were married. Oh, yeah. Way before. <laughs> before the babies. <laughs> before it's just so crazy to think back to that time I was serving in kids ministry um like I was I always joke I was there like almost like full time just totally like three four days a week just totally in the throes of my faith and you were doing community outreach and I always admired the work that you were doing and so for those who this is kind of the the foundation that we're coming out of off of this conversation um it'll be interesting to hear our experiences merge together um in the church but for those who aren't familiar with you why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and you know the work that up to the work that you're doing today 
Awesome. So I was born and raised in the Southeast in North Carolina of the United States and had a great upbringing. Like it's a wonderful small town. I'm sure we'll get into my story and different things like that a little bit later, but I was running away from my life Mm. (laughs) at the age of 21. And so I decided to move across the country to Los Angeles and um, 3000 miles away from my family. And I really thought I'm going to escape all the things. And then I realized, no, everywhere you go, there you are. All the things come with you. It's just really not fair, honestly. (laughs) And I started this really radical journey of healing and found faith, found a community in that same home church that you were just talking about, people who were normal and not preachy, mm-hmm. <laughs> not weird <laughs> and not judgmental and began to kind of settle in and started a beautiful recovery journey. Um, and I'm 16 years sober now from drugs, alcohol, eating disorders, all the things. And I began to rebuild my life in Los Angeles. I met my husband there. We now have two children and a baby on the way. And I've done a lot of jobs in my past. I don't know about you, Brittany, but I sort of feel like I've lived a lot of lives. <laughs> so I've been, yes, I've been an outreach pastor. Um, I pastored a church with my husband in Manhattan for four years, which we also really loved um, and appreciated being downtown on Wall Street um, with a beautiful faith community. And then uh, now I'm a full-time writer and speaker. And so that's what I do full-time. I released my first book last October. It's called Rise of the Truth Teller. Yes. Own your story, tell it like it is, and live with holy gumption. Because I'm very passionate about story. I'm very passionate about people finding out what they were created for. And I'm very passionate about us working together for the greater good, for us figuring out how do we live on this planet together? How do we begin to see each other as made in the image of God? And obviously, I can't think of another time than right now that we've needed truth tellers to rise. <laughs> like right. We need that desperately in our society. And we need to really understand who we are and what we were created for and how we are all interconnected. And so that's what I spend the bulk of my time doing. I also have a podcast called Why Though that I lead Mm -hmm. with my best friend, Tiffany Bloom. She lives in Tacoma, Washington. And so, yeah, that's what I'm doing full time. And we moved back to Los Angeles recently, relocated about two weeks before the global pandemic hit. So (laughs) that was fun. Just kidding. It was not fun. (laughs) But I'm so glad to be back on the West Coast. I really love it here. I love the community. I love the connectedness and collaboration of Southern California. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. It sounds like five lives, right? But (laughs) I'm sure I know that all of that experience has just expanded you so much to this day. Like, I don't know. I'm just having a moment in my mind where I'm thinking about just the journey over the past few years and uh, even just being seeing you grow over the years has been yeah. super cool. Seeing you from being the outreach pastor at our at our home church to moving and pastoring you guys' own church, and um, it's just been super cool to see. And in that vein, you know, I was sharing in the last podcast episode we had an episode on race, justice, and the church about yeah. how for me, like I'm a Los Angeles native girl, so. I've always been around diversity, you know, um, I've always had friends of every color. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so, and I'll share a little bit more about my dynamic with race, but yeah. our church was very diverse. Like yes. you saw every color in our church, yes. you saw every race. Um, it was very just alive. Um, very centered in love, but also just never shied away from things like racial justice and community outreach and talking about these issues very openly. And so, but I'm realizing that what I experienced was very much a bubble (laughs) because when I got out into the world and kind of saw what was going on in different uh, churches or different conversations that were happening in the big C church world, uh, I saw that that Unit, that unity on these topics wasn't always there, um, That's right. wasn't always talked about. And so I feel very um, blessed in a way to have that have been my, my starting in the church. Um, Me too. Was and this, I also, yeah, diverse experience. Yes, I'm with you. And what was also very unique to that multicultural church is that it was true from the top down. So very often what you find, and this is why in times like this, people become very angry with the church or members of the church who have been suffering in silence or noticing little things, suddenly it all comes to a head. When we have, when we're in the streets protesting and we're figuring this thing out and where's God in this and where's the church in this, but we were diverse from the top down. Like the second 
second in command was a, a black woman. And, you know, there was a young single Latin American woman on the executive team. Yeah. And there was an interracial couple who, who served the youth and another interracial couple who oversaw our Celebrate Recovery. So like truly from the top down, from the executive leadership down into all of the teams, down into the congregation, it was wonderfully rich and diverse. And I think that yeah. that is why it felt like a bubble. Because then you go to other churches and you're like, wait, I'm sorry, you have an all white staff? Yeah. In it was this just big totally segregated. Yeah. Yes. What? How? How is literally, how is that even possible? And I think that, you know, it's, it's important that we understand as people and as people of God that, you know, diversity is not just this, like we don't just cultivate diversity and have people in the room. Like that's actually not equitable and it's actually not a collaborative connected community. You know, we actually need that leadership from the top down. We need voices at the table who are representative of the communities that we serve. And when it doesn't happen, it's no wonder people get angry. It's no wonder that people are up in arms about it. They, they should be rightly. So yeah. <laughs> we need to change. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I want to circle back to this conversation because there's so many important things being said here. So rewinding for a bit, I want to start with your story mm-hmm. um, and then my story. And then we're going to, I'd love to combine it into our experience now at this church and yes. going forward with these issues. So how did you, you know, like you said, you come, you came from the, the, the South, as you said, East, South, mm-hmm. Eastern, South. Yep. Southeast. Uh, yep. Southeast. I'm uh-huh. mixed up. Uh, you came from the Southeast <laughs> and then, you know, you're a white woman and yep. you then went to LA and you were in this diverse church and you very, you were very hands-on with like inner city LA. Um, and so that was always super cool to see, but how starting out, how did you understand or experience race and racial issues mm-hmm. growing up and how has that expanded today? Yes. I know that's, that's such a, a loaded question. No, I love it. It's great. And, um, I'm used to talking about it. So that's a great question. Thank you. I, you know, growing up in the Southeast, you could sort of, if you're not from the South, you could sort of identify that like, you know, this is like potentially redneck country or everybody's very regressive in their values. And I think the South kind of gets a bad rap. It's not that things like that don't happen. It's not that we don't have a sordid past yeah. <laughs> because we do. But at the same time, I also grew up with a very rich and diverse experience. And so I did not have an all white world. You know, my brother and I were in um, a daycare where we were the only white kids and we were um, living in a neighborhood that, you know, we were not economically well off. So then we were in a neighborhood that didn't just have white people. And so I think that that was very helpful for my fundamental upbringing. Unfortunately, the the streak that I don't love and that I deeply regret now is that I really was the type of person who would say, I don't see color, but not because I was in an all white world, but because I was like, wait, we're all one in the same. We played mm-hmm. together since we were toddlers and diapers. And it wasn't until I got a lot older and began actually focusing on racial justice and doing the work maybe around like 2005, started really doing the work of understanding what it, what even is white privilege and what does this mean that I have, even though I, I, I didn't live above the poverty line until I was 27 years old. Right. And so it was very difficult for me to understand and really unpack that. So I began to educate myself and understand, wait a minute, no, I've, I will never have to fear for my life when, I'm, when the cops are pulling me over. In fact, I've been pulled over multiple times and never even gotten a ticket. I've been pulled over before and had warrants out for my arrest and did not get arrested. Mm. I was let go. Um, and so these are things. And at the time I thought like, oh, God is good. Like his grace is sufficient. It's like, no, no, by white is sufficient. That is actually the thing that is saving me. That is actually the thing that is allowing me to get away. And I didn't understand those dynamics until I really dove into education. And then what really changed me is, you know, as I began this work of being an outreach pastor, and at the time our church really didn't have very much going on in the community. So they hired me to sort of, you know, begin community outreach. What would it look like to do community development? And I was so blessed to study under mentors like John Perkins, who was in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And I was so blessed to study under local leadership um, that taught me like, hey, outreach and justice is not this event that you do at your church, you know, for Christmas and Thanksgiving. This is actually a lifestyle and you have to learn to live equitably and you have to learn to understand what it means for people to live well in the world. And so I was really blessed to have some mentors that kept me from building an outreach ministry for our church that was very, um, 
you know, event driven and like, we're here to help. We're the big white saviors, you know, and we can't wait to fix you and make you better. But they really taught me that everywhere you go, you have something to learn. And of course, growing up poor and, and having been teased for that as a, as a young person, I understood that very deeply, how important it was to not arrive in a community and be the savior, but to arrive in a community going, I also have something to learn from you. And I believe that you have the solutions to the problems that you're facing because you're living them. And I'm not like, I'm going to leave and you're still going to be here. So let's empower you to figure out what would really work. How can we serve you? That's a very different question than how can I help you? <laughs> and yeah. so um, what really changed me is I was introduced to Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book, Just Mercy. He's the oh, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. Right? Who yes. doesn't? Like oh. he's, he's wonderful at, uh, at a justice conference back in, I think, 2011. And at that time, I really felt so strongly I had been wanting to serve somehow in the criminal justice system. And I really wanted to be a prison chaplain. And so at the time I was praying and just figuring out what would it look like for me to engage in this work in a smart way, not in a dishonoring way, but what would this look like for me? And it just so happened at the same time, there was a program starting up called the Nehemiah Project in the jails in downtown Los Angeles and in Van Nuys, um, which is sort of like the Valley of Los Angeles. And so I was trained as a prison chaplain and was able to go in and, um, and meet with people on a consistent basis, talk to them, dialogue with them, pray with them if they wanted that. It was an interfaith. So we were very respectful of people who didn't have a Christian faith, but if they wanted wanted anything from me or just wanted a listening ear, I could be available for that. So what was unique to me and what was formative in my real understanding of disparity and how the criminal justice system and, and America overall from the constitution down is really built for white landowning men. <laughs> and um, yeah. it was this moment that I'm sitting across from a, a woman and she is beautiful. She looks like she maybe got picked up on her on a target run. It just made no sense that she was sitting across from me in a jail. And so I was like, what is happening? And, they, and, and we didn't push people to, to tell their stories, but she began to open up and share that she was afraid um, that her, you know, what would happen to her little two-year-old son who was home with her grandmother. There was no way she could contact them. And so um, we began to talk about that. Turns out she was picked up on an outstanding warrant that she did not go to court for because she couldn't afford to leave her job. And I resonated with that because that's what all my my warrants were. It's like either I don't make the hundred dollars I need today to pay my rent or yeah. I go to court. And so same for her. And as she shared that with me, I just, I just began to weep and understand very deeply why um, color really matters in America. And why there's no way we can say we just don't see color and that this criminal justice system has gross disparities where people are hurt and wounded and treated differently because of the color of their skin. And it was a real moment for me to realize not only do I have to keep my foot on the gas about racial justice, but I need to begin speaking out more and hosting events and helping people really understand this. And that was the, the catalyst moment for me where I really realized like this is something I can contribute to. And I understand to the best of my ability, I'm still learning and will be until the day I die. Like I, there's no yeah. way I can understand and a minority experience because I'm not, <laughs> you know, um, but to the best of my ability, I want to fight on behalf of this issue and create a more equitable world for our children. That's important to me. Amen. And I can verify that you are, you have practiced what you're preaching. <laughs> like yeah. I can yes. verify firsthand with my own eyes that I've gotten to see some of the work that you did. And it was, I just, I loved that. And I, you know, and it's so funny because in, in church, I was like, I'm like with the kids ministry and I'm like, but it'd be yes. so cool to be out there, you know, um, with Ashley and all this <laughs> outreach stuff, you know, but I had my, I had, you know, I had my corner of, of ministry with yes. kids and I learned a and lot about leadership mm. there and it's all very important. That's right. um, but I, I do remember you, you doing that work and, and it's so cool and how you were, you were very everything you're describing, you were very proactive. You're very proactive about educating yourself on it. You know, you're very proactive about learning, going to the Justice Conference and uh, reading books and hearing about Brian Stevenson. Also, I encourage watching the documentary 13th, um, yes. just for some background on everything Ashley's saying about the racial disparities when it comes to, uh, you know, the prison system and mass incarceration, yeah. um, just for a resource there. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing all of that. You know, uh, you did not have to do this, right? Like you could <laughs> be like, well, you know, I care about this. I empathize for this, but you know, it's not, you know, these issues weren't your, uh, lived reality in these communities specifically, right? Like you could have chosen not to intervene. 
Um, I, I, I think that could have been a choice, but at the same yeah. time, I'm like, how can I call myself a Christ follower right. and not, uh, and not want to do this work? That's, that's what I don't understand. You know, Walter Brueggemann, who's an old Testament scholar, he says that one of the fundamental problems with modern day Christianity is that we have mm-hmm. divorced love of God from love of neighbor. And so for me, it's like, I think about the friends that I grew up with. I think about the people that I'm close to, because again, I'm not in an all white world. And I'm like, this mm-hmm. matters because you're my sister and you're my brother. And so this matters to me. You know, like as if you were in my blood, this matters to me. Yeah. And I think that is, that's why I do it. It's because these, this is my family. <laughs> so yeah. I think we're, I want more people who are in the, who are white to really have a fundamental understanding of like, Hey, God doesn't just care about your kind. <laughs> you know, like this is not how that works. And yeah. that's a really racist way of living in the world. So we do have to figure out what does this look like for us and how can we begin to care and engage in things that God cares about and that God is engaged in. Yeah. I think it's really important that you're saying that because I want to bring back up this I don't see color idea because I see this come up a lot, even on social media, you know, um, with Christians where it is, you know, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor nor female. We are all one in Christ, you know, ideology, um, you know, talk just the idea of talking about race itself is quote unquote divisive, you know, and why are we talking about something that divides us? when we're one in Christ and just, um, you know, talking about how, like where we are getting that wrong (laughs) in a way. Um, I have a really hard time with people who try to divorce culture, um, from a person because, you know, for me from the background of just cultural psychology, we understand that culture is a a integral part of a person's personhood. You can't separate, you know, there, and there are different levels of culture, right? There's racial culture, there's church culture, there's American culture, mainstream culture. We have all these different dynamics and subcultures that are interacting that are shaping our cognition, our perspective, our beliefs, our attitudes, our experiences. And so anytime I feel like there's language that tries to erase that from a person, you are erasing large parts of that person and you'll never fully understand them if you cannot come to um, embrace their culture and and not see it as a bad thing. And so I'd love to hear uh, some of your thoughts on that, especially in context of the church where it's just Mm -hmm. like this whole idea of not seeing color, not talking about race because it's divisive to do so when we're all in one in Christ, like, mm-hmm. like that language, why might yes. that be problematic? Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey guys, we're going to get right back to the conversation because trust me, I know you'll want to hear the whole thing, but I quickly wanted to share with you this exciting new partnership I have with BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. One of the questions I get asked a lot are how you can go about starting therapy. A number of you are located around the country and even around the world. And as helpful as I often like to be, sometimes I find myself limited in being able to provide the one-on-one resources that you need. Well, I'm happy to say that one option I can share with you today is BetterHelp's online therapy and counseling services with licensed mental health professionals. Since I know a lot of you guys want more faith-based counseling as well, I'm even more excited to share that they also have another service called Faithful Counseling, which has licensed Christian therapists and counselors who are certified by their state, where you can receive licensed counseling using your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or text messaging. So I use BetterHelp Therapy. I've been using it myself, and it's been super convenient, you know, between school, work, and really just having someone to check in with on a regular basis has been so important for my own mental health. So what happens is when you sign up, you'd be matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, and you can securely message your counselor anytime, any day, you know, day or night, and get replies within 24 to 48 hours. BetterHelp also has group in our sessions every week where you can learn in groups directly from licensed counselors on multiple topics like relationships and ways to overcome anxiety. Uh, I also found out that financial aid is available for those who qualify and you can apply for financial aid during the signup process. Hello. Additionally, listeners of the Faith and Mental Wellness podcast like you get 10% off of their first month using my specific link in the show notes below. 
And like I said, I know a number of you are around the world. BetterHelp is available worldwide. And if you want to get started and get matched with a counselor within the next 24 hours, I have links to both BetterHelp and Faithful Counseling in the show notes. I should mention that it is not a crisis line, okay? If you are experiencing a crisis, I have a link to all the crisis lines by country in the show notes as well. Check it out and let me know what you think. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Oh, it's so problematic. And in fact, my I'm like coming out of my skin as you're talking because yeah. to me, that's like the language of assimilation. Like what, yeah. what people are asking for when they call that unity is they're saying, I want you to assimilate to our dominant culture rather than bringing your whole self to the table. <clears throat> and, you know, there's people talk about code switching where, mm-hmm. you know, um, black people or Latin American people or people who might be immigrants from other countries will have to act a certain way at work versus the way they really are at home or the way they really are with some of their friends or around a certain group of pe- people, they might feel like they have have to assimilate into that dominant culture in order to be accepted, in order to be favored, in order to have promotions on their job or to excel in their work. And so this is the kind of stuff, it's like the language of assimilation to me. And I, and I use it strongly for a reason, because I want people to understand how offensive that is. And for most um, people who are white in America, and again, I'm broad stroking and I recognize that. So of course there's going to be some small exceptions to these rules. So I'm broad stroking, but at the same time for white America, we really haven't had to do that because everything is built for us. You you know, when, when I was coming up in school, I did not have to ask deeper questions about some of the history that I was learning that was inaccurate and wrong. <laughs> I didn't even know mm-hmm. to ask deeper questions. I didn't have to worry about not seeing myself in the history books. I didn't have to worry about not opening a book um, that had pictures in it and not seeing myself or purchasing a doll that was a different skin color. And some of that has changed and thank God. But at the same time, like this culture is built for me. I've never had to worry about getting a job. I've never had to worry about if somebody thinks I'm going to steal something in a store. Like these are the things that I've just never had to be worried about. And so when people say, use this language of, you know, well, we just don't see color. And why are you trying to be divisive? To me, it's an indicator that they, number one, they don't want to deal with the truth beneath their own skin. (laughs) Like they don't want to deal with the fact that the rhetoric they're saying that that they don't want to admit that this is a hard thing to talk about. And maybe they don't know how, and maybe they don't see any reason why they should, because their life is unaffected. But just because your life is unaffected, doesn't mean other people aren't affected. And so we have to learn to sort of step out of that and go, I have to have these hard and uncomfortable conversations because they're important to the earth, to the body, to the world. Mm -hmm. And moving forward, you know, if you looked at at the earth, it's not majority white anymore. (laughs) So it's like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what people are thinking. You know, it's like, you have got to get a clue about other cultures and stop resisting this, like stop resisting, or you're going to get left behind. Like, that's really the truth of it. And, um, you know, I, I get why in some ways, uh, people would say, I don't see color. Some of it is just to deny, like, because they're, they're denying their own racism. They're denying their own perspective. And some of it is more my upbringing where it's like, we were all raised together. Like, of course I don't see color. Like, I love you, whatever your skin color is, is what it means. But again, it's got this offensive tone yeah. that just, you know, I'm not going to recognize your differences. And the last thing I want to say about this is I wrote about this in my book, a whole chapter about this, but I talk about, um, from Corinthians 12 in the Bible, where there is a great passage that if you've been in church at all in your life, you may have heard it where it talks about, you know, the ear doesn't say to the eye, I don't need you. And the mouth doesn't say to the foot, I don't need you, but we're all connected. And it talks about how the body is all one. Now, what I find so unique about this passage is that it's not telling the ear to not be an ear and it's not telling the eye to not be an eye. And it's not saying to the foot, you need to be more like the eye. It's allowing the differences. And not only is it allowing them, but it's also recognizing the differences. And the guy who wrote this is the same guy who said, there is no slave. There is no Jew. There is Mm -hmm. no Greek. There is no male. There is no female. So he's not saying, Hey, all of our differences are absolved in Christ. He's saying all of our differences are recognized in Christ. And we are allowed to bring our whole self to the table and figure out how to be together in community. And in that same passage, it says that God made this body so that we would all have mutual concern for each other. And that phrase really stands out to me. He made this body so that we would all have mutual concern for each other. And he talks about how the parts of the body that we think are, are dispensable are the parts that deserve the greatest honor. And I think mm-hmm. if we were to each examine our biases, our prejudices, the way we think about the world, we would find a group of people or a person that based on the way they look or the way they think or the ideas that they might have that we would demonize or villainize that person and, and 
and demand them to be dispensable. <laughs> like yeah. if I could throw away this part of the body, God, I would. And we have to examine that because the Lord is saying that is the part that deserves the greatest honor. Yeah. So then how do we examine those prejudices that we have, the biases that we have, and then come to reckon with, oh, hey, you know what? Actually, I am racist. And actually, I do hold some sexist ideals. Or actually, I do, you know, whatever those things are for you. Um, I don't respect people who don't have an education. I mean, the list could go on forever. It goes so much further beyond race. Mm -hmm. um, we need to examine those and think about those things because God is saying those are the things that deserve the greatest amount of honor. And that is the way that we develop a mutual concern for each other. And part of my work as a white person Person, you know, and one of my mentors, her name's Lisa Sharon Harper. She really pointed this out to me when I first moved to Manhattan. So this is, you know, four years ago now, but she pointed this out to me when I shared with her, gosh, I don't know how to serve these wall streeters. Like this is not my lane. Like I've been working in communities for years and I don't yeah. know how to be around these obscenely rich people who don't seem to give a rip about anything, which wasn't <laughs> true about them, but I had so many judgments based on my background and she just said to me, Ashley, this is your work. <laughs> like, you don't actually need to go outside of this group of people to figure out your work. But what if you were to make a difference in some of these people's lives? The bias that I had held the most was against rich white men because I had been re really hurt and wounded by that population and some rich white women. Um, and so I was you know, running from that work. But I really realized if I can overcome this bias, then I'm going to be doing an even better job for the people of color in my life because I'm going to be able to help people really understand understand why it's important that we see color, that we deal with issues like racism and sexism and classism and all the isms. Like, all the so isms. Began, yeah. And I began to really do more of that work. And I recognized that my own bias was against people who have the same skin color with me, but are in a different economic bracket. And so I really had to realize they're not dispensable. They're not just like, oh, rich white people. And maybe people of color can think that and you're justified in doing so in this season. Good for you. But I think like for me, as a white person, that was part of my work is I had to really step beyond my own biases and prejudices so that I could actually do better in the work of racial healing. And so that I needed more mutual concern for people like that. And so I think we yeah. all have to figure out in those deeply rooted, deeply seated things that we've been raised with, what does that mean for us? And how do we, how do we overcome them? And what does that look like for us to overcome them? Yeah. Preach. Oh my gosh. <laughs> saying so much here like I a few things like one I'm just hearing humility 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 right mm. like humbling yourself right um to see people this to see your neighbor completely and, and bringing mm -hmm. our whole selves I love what you said about that just we yes. have to bring our whole selves and I also love what you said about biases because right. I think the big thing is usually it's the people who are denying their biases <laughs> that right. are the ones that are like perpetuating them you Come know on. because we do all That's have Brittany I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt them yes yes and yes I yes. just wanted to, to put an exclamation point on that yes because we all have and some people are like no I don't have any and you know we all have some level and I'll, and I'll just put this out there psychologically it is just kind of a natural human phenomenon psychologically for us to draw toward be attracted to and be connected with people who are similar to us yes. you know um, whether that's race whether that's class whether that's experiences uh, it, it's just it feels safer it feels more natural it's easier to connect right this is why also I understand the struggle with like you know, being an all black church or an all white church and yes. people I think have want to diversify. But the truth is that like people within that neighborhood or within that group just naturally attract people like them. So then you have this church full of people who are all kind of in the same class in the same race, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, and that and it would have to be very intentional to diversify that. But, uh, you know, I wanted to say you were talking about how even as a white woman, you have biases against people within your own race that mm -hmm. were, you know, richer and, and in a different social class. And that also exists within the black community. There's colorism, you know, um, yes. there's this whole light skin, dark skin thing, and the more European features you have. And that's something that I learned about my family is Creole. You know, um, so my family goes back to Louisiana where they were, my my family's like that mix of French, Spanish, and black. And so yes. they had finer hair, they had more European features, and that's when they had like the brown paper bag test, which was like mm. you could get into certain places if you were lighter than a paper bag. Wow. So there's colorism even within uh, the black community. Uh, so I just wanted to put out there all around that biases exist. 
you know, and we have to acknowledge what those are so that we can at least go, okay, I need to be more intentional about, you know, connecting more or understanding or connecting with these exact same groups of people that I have biases about so I can begin to see them as human and more connected to me than I realized, Mm. you know. Um, And so for me, going back really quickly, what you were saying about code switching and kind of your race being made salient when you're non-white because it's not really catered to you. So I was a girl who came from, who who was, you know, who grew up in the hood, right? Like lived in Inglewood, inner city LA, South Central LA. That's kind of where we lived, like Crenshaw and Slauson area. That's where Nipsey Hussle's shop was, you know. um, And actually my mom went to school with his mom. No (laughs) Uh, way! Yeah, I was like, oh, you're just going to casually tell me that you went to school with Nipsey Hussle's mom. Okay, cool. Uh, (laughs) But that's kind of, that was kind of my area that I grew up in. Even though we live in the hood, you know, um, my my family had me going to school in Bel Air in a private school mm. um, where I was the only black girl in the room, mostly growing oh. up. Um, and all of my friends were white. And um, not only that, but not only like this racial difference, but there was a huge class difference because they were like, you know, some of them millionaire celebrities. Like it was a very exclusive kind of elitist school. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't remember how my parents got connected with someone and like a scholarship helped or something. And I was so I went to that school. That was like my upbringing. So it was mm. interesting because I had this dynamic where I you know went home and I was in a black and brown community. Right. And then, you know, I was going to school and all of my friends were kind of in this elite white racial wealth situation right. um and so i i felt my i i definitely felt my race those were mm. that was also the same time that i f- heard my first racial slur um mm. i was in i was six years old and a kid i can't make this up like he was like he he told me to stick out my tongue because his dad told him that ends don't have tongues Jesus. Right. And I didn't even know what the N word was at that time because nobody in my family used it. Um, I just knew I felt violated, you know, and that was then a conversation that I had to have. Um, I remember, for example, like, you know, we tell you're talking about racial issues and slavery in school and I'm the only black girl in the room. Mm. And it's like, this isn't awkward at all. Uh, You know, (laughs) we were watching Roots. Right. Like we're watching the movie Roots and history class and I'm the only black girl in the room and I could very much feel right. I'm identifying with the slaves like I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, that'd be me, you know, but and I'm in this room full of white kids and um, and my race was just made very salient. And then there was no talking about it. There was no kind of digression of it. Um, like everything you said, it's like you open up the history books, you don't see yourself in the history books, especially in academia. Right. Like, or when you watch the movies, you're never the superhero. You know, your people are right. never the superhero. They're never the professional uh, person. You know, they're never like, right? So, right. Um, so it was really interesting being older though. And... Um, it's being older and seeing all of that now because at the time I was too young to kind of process what that code switching was for me or what those differences were for me and me trying to reconcile my race with, you know, being in a situation where I felt very differentiated and there were even some microaggressions mm-hmm. and racial slurs taking place. And yeah, you know, um, mm. yeah. And I, and it was interesting as I got older, I had more diverse friends, you know, I I actually found myself in a space where I felt like I could connect with all kinds of people. And it kind of, for me, ended up feeling like a benefit where it's like, okay, I feel like I could be in any space and adapt and adjust uh, because I've lived through all the, all spaces I've lived, I've lived through being the mostly the only black girl in the room. So I personally have come to feel comfortable and okay, you know, um, in those spaces and adjusting, although, you know, you do get to a point where you're like, okay, at some point we've got to diversify this. Like there's gotta be some change here, you know? Yeah. I can put my head down. I'll do the work, but you know, what does that look like? Um, and so for me, it was a very interesting experience because then in around middle school, I went to an all black and brown school. It was mostly blacks and Latinos, mm. right? 
Um, and then I found myself having a code switch there because some of the music I liked, some of the things I was into was quote unquote culturally white. And right. so then I was experiencing di- discrimination with my own kind where it was like, you know, she's mm. such an Oreo, you know, acts like a white girl. So I found this split mm. where it was like in the white spaces, I was very, I was black. I was very black, right? Felt my blackness. And then in the black spaces, I wasn't black enough. Um, and mm. so there's a whole, there's a whole thing around that. And there's a lot of research around that, around the code switching, there like is. you're saying, yes. Yes. um, as I got older, um, I just learned that I can't let other people define, you know, my racial identity and what that's supposed to look like and how that's supposed to translate. I'm a black woman. Um, and I connect with people of all racial backgrounds and I feel comfortable with that, uh, just cause I've been in a variety of spaces, but like your experience, you know, I think it's showing how important it is, though, to intentionally be in a variety of spaces. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And thank you so much for sharing so much of your story with us, because I think it's really powerful to have an understanding of what people are going through and what they experience. And that this this issue of race is not, um, you know, very binary, but it's nuanced and it's very complex to talk about race and culture and then the intersections of race, class, gender, and what all of that looks like for us. So just thank you so much for sharing. And it makes me want to really lean into how I'm parenting my children too. Mm -hmm. You know, it just makes me want to lean in even more to have these conversations and to make sure that I'm cultivating a world where they're experiencing so many different things so that nothing is weird or nothing is bad or nothing is defined for them in a binary way. But like, hey, people are people and we need to push past so many of this, so much of this binary language to understand the complexities of human beings. And I love um, Jane Elliott, you know, she's an old school. Yes. Oh, right. Like she's an OG ally. (laughs) And um, I love when she talks about, you know, there's, there's no human, there is one race, it's the human race. And and she goes on and many people, many academics and smart people, way smarter than I am talk about this, how race is a social construct and why it was built and how we can undo this sort of, you know, idea that race is this thing. And it also, it separates me as a white person too. Like I'm, I'm shrunk down to the, the color white. And so many of us in white America have been shrunk down to that. Um, mm-hmm. The activist Ruby Sales talks about this, how we don't, we, we divorce ourselves from our culture, from our heritage, from the countries that we came from. Most of us don't even know what countries we came from. We might've even done an ancestry test, but we have no idea mm-hmm. what we've inherited. And it's because we've all been reduced down to this color, but race is this social construct that is meant to divide us, that is meant to build this thing that we're all living in. And it's important for us to dismantle that work and to unlearn what we have learned <laughs> so that we yeah. can move forward in strength and understanding and love one another appropriately, serve one another appropriately and not devalue one another's dignity. You know, we are made in the image of God, all of us. And it's important for us to really have a revelation about that. Yeah. So that being said, why do you think allyship is so important across cultural groups when it comes to Mm -hmm. racial injustice? Like, you know, what's really interesting is Uh, so I'm, again, I'm born and raised in LA. Mm -hmm. Um, I come from a black family. So you just know about Rodney King, right? The Mm -hmm. 92 riots. And Mm -hmm. for a long time, I didn't even know like what it was. I just knew Rodney King was a thing and it was a bad thing. (laughs) It wasn't until I got a bit older and I, and I watched the, you know, the, you know, the news clips and the footage and, uh, the brutality that took place and everything and what that divide was, uh, you know, there, there was a huge uproar in the black community and there has been for years. I mean, people sometimes act like this is new and it's just, it's just something that the liberal media is spinning. It's not like this conversation has been going on for decades. Um, and so, but what's really cool, I think, about right now and this point in time in history is that I am seeing so much diversity in the fight for racial justice. Yes. I mean, you see these protests and I heard that they were having like, like a, what was it, like a white line or something where mm-hmm. in the protests, you know, whenever there was brutality, there were yes. white people who would stand in the front yes. and protect kind of uh the black community that was out there Mm -hmm. protesting Mm -hmm. um and i I mean i've never seen anything like that um Mm -hmm. in my life uh so it's interesting though even on social media to see 
a lot of different cultures now um, yes. advocating this. And so why do you think this is so important? Like this allyship across cultures and it's not just blacks fighting for racial justice when their communities, why do you think it's important that others are in on this too? Like why should they care? Why should it matter to them mm-hmm. just as much? Yes. Well, I, I love, um, you know, you hear so many people talk about this. My dear friend, Daya, she's a, a student at Fuller Seminary right now getting a double master's. She's a remarkable black woman. And we met each other in Manhattan. And I recently just posted her blog with her permission on my blog as a guest because it was the most powerful reflection because she wow. talked about basically, you know, we need to understand that whatever is happening to the least of these, these are not her words. I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase them, but whatever's happening to the least of these means that we're all in danger of this happening to us. And so just on a fundamental safety level, and like human life level, whatever is happening to the least of these could could definitely transition into dominant culture. And so we need to understand that this is not happening in a vacuum and this is not happening in a way that it's not directly connected to us. I also was very thankful for the pandemic, not not because I'm thankful for coronavirus and all the sickness and all the loss and all the death. Of course, I'm not thankful for that. But what it did give us opportunity to do is that we were not in our regular in-person echo chambers. We are definitely still in our online echo chamber. The digital world is a whole other conversation in space, but we were not in our having the work water cooler talk about, you know, whatever we're watching on the media. So if you're a major Fox newser, you're not just only receiving that and then having that little track in your brain amplified when you go to work with the water cooler talk. And then at your family dinner table, everybody's talking and saying the same thing. And it doesn't have to just be Fox. It can be whatever you're into. And so I think that we were out of our echo chambers. People had a little bit more space to be reflective and thoughtful about their convictions, their values, their beliefs. People also had more space to get out in the streets. It's like, you know, all the protests here in Southern California are happening all throughout the day. You can find a protest. There's a morning protest. There's a Mm -hmm. midday peaceful protest. There's an evening peaceful protest. Like they're all over and I've loved it because we can engage our family and we can be a part of it, but that wouldn't happen if all of us were going to our nine to fives and distracted and busy. So I think in a way, you know, um, in Romans 8, 28, it says that God works all things together for good for those who love him and who are called to his purpose. And I think this terrible pandemic, one of the good things that came out of that is that people are caring in a way they never had cared before. And George Floyd is not an anomaly. It's not like this is the first time this has happened. And we, we saw this with Eric Garner, like the same thing happened yes. to him. He was, he was tapping and saying, I can't breathe. And so like you said, none of this is new. It's been going back, you know, centuries in America, but for some reason people are waking up. So to your question, what is the strength of allyship and why do we need it right now? Well, I think one thing I really want to say to people is that it's important that you earn trust and it's important that you just be quiet. Like I don't think anybody should be walking around saying I'm an ally to the black community. If if you have not earned trust and if you are just now going to your first protest, if you are just now reading some books on race, it doesn't mean that you're not journeying toward that end, but just like earn some trust, listen, Mm. be quiet, just show up in the space, just be consistent, be, have integrity around showing up for racial justice before you just start spouting off that you're an ally and you're here to serve because you're going to be suspect to everybody. That's just how it is because we need to see that when all this dies down, when you go back to work, when your life picks back up again, that you're still in this because it matters to you on a personal level. And so I think knowing that, you know, an ally first has to earn trust. And an ally first has to keep showing up consistently. Like you are not someone who's jumping on the bandwagon of social media and doing Blackout Tuesday and calling yourself an ally. Like that is not what an ally is. And I love that you use that example of, um, you know, white people placing themselves in between the police and um, black people and other people of color, because it's important that we see that like, hey, we're willing to put our life on the line because these are my brothers and these are my sisters and they matter to me and they matter to God. So here I am. (laughs) And I think that, you know, that's a journey for people to make, but we cannot change laws and we cannot change police brutality and we cannot change the things that are happening in our community unless everyone gets involved. And if that wasn't the truth, then all of this stuff would have changed because people of color have been crying out in the streets for years. This is not new, as you've already said. It's not new, but it will require white people having an understanding. And if we look back on history, we think about Emmett Till and the the courage of his mother to hold an open casket for her son who was lynched, um, even though he was innocent. And and later on, the woman who accused him before she died admitted that that he was innocent and that she made the story up. And she left that open casket so that white America for the first time would have to acknowledge what was really 
happening. And I think this is one of those Kairos moments in history where we have an opportunity to make a change and where we have an opportunity to understand that we have a part to play and that we have a role to play in this and that we can recognize <laughs> that yeah. people are made in the image of God and we must act. Like now is the time. And I, again, I think those who don't get involved and who don't get engaged are going to be left behind. Like those who resist and say, it, you know, racism doesn't exist and we're living in a post-racial world. It's like, okay, I'm like, we're not going to fool with you because the, the train's running. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Get on or we're leaving you behind. Um, and it's not something I'm saying because I want anyone to be left behind, but I think that really is just the facts. And so yeah. allyship matters because it's going to take all of us. It really is. Um, yeah. But please remember to earn trust to show up, to listen, to learn, to do your own work. Don't call all of your friends who are black or Latin American or Asian American and ask them, you know, all this stuff. You have the Google, the Google is great. You can read some books Google on your Google University. <laughs> yeah, Google University. Ask some of your white friends who you, who you trust, who feel like have a handle on the issue of race. Don't give, don't put the burden of your learning on people of color right now. Don't do that. <laughs> do your work. <laughs> I have, you are, I had other questions and you just like bunched it all up. So we're so on accord right now. You said so much. So now I have three rapid fire questions Love as it. we're wrapping this up. Okay. First thing you mentioned the bandwagon. I think that is something that uh, people are having concern about, especially uh, like communities of color. Like, okay, you know, right now the whole racial justice issue is hot, right? It is yeah. not a social media strategy, <laughs> yeah, um, right? It is not just this, right, bandwagon that you hop on, right? You're posting the blackout because everybody's posting it. Now, for someone uh, who is non-black, who genuinely does want to be an ally, and this really woke them up in other yeah. ways, and they're like, okay, yeah. maybe this is the start of my journey to be an ally and to help in these areas, which I have a lot of friends who I, are very genuine about this. Yeah. How how can someone continue to be an ally in the space they're in, right? They might not, I know everybody has their roles, right? They might mm -hmm. not be the person who's standing in front of city hall protesting, um, right. or they may be, or they might be the person who is using their platform to have education uh, disseminated out. Yes. Um, but in their everyday spaces, like what does that look like for the everyday person? Um, I don't know, maybe some examples of how mm -hmm. they can continue to be an ally beyond this current crisis when, say, it begins to die down and it's not the highlight of the news cycle anymore. Yes, I love this question. And I love the phrase, your ordinary spaces. Oh my gosh, that is something I feel so deeply passionate about because everyone listening is in a different space. You yeah. might be um, a man at an executive level who owns a business or is on a major executive team. And you might be sitting in a meeting and hear a racist joke or a sexist joke, even if it feels a little like, you know, not that big of a deal. It is actually a big deal. And you have the authority to say, hey, we don't talk like this in, this, in, that, in our boardroom. You have the authority to yeah. speak directly to people who are upholding these sort of systems and structures. If you notice that there are no females for the last 20 years in your company, what can you do about that? If you notice that there's no people of color in your leadership teams, well, it's not because there are not plenty of people of color who are qualified. So what does it look like for you to begin to dismantle that? If you are a mom at home with your kids and you're like, gosh, I'm trying to build this business. I love Brittany. I want to figure out how she does everything that she does. I want to figure <laughs> this out. It's like, great. You can raise your children to have a fundamental understanding of racism in the world what it looks like, how to identify it, how to um, undo that from a very early age, you are laying the foundation of how they view the world and human beings. And so that is important work. It might not feel as important as a protest or doing you know, all these public things, but that secret work right there is important. If you are, um, maybe you are the model minority, for example, we hear that phrase a lot, um, and it's very often said about uh, Asian Americans in our culture. And so maybe you've just never in your lifetime ever spoken up about race, even though you have plenty of friends who might be black or plenty of friends who are white and you don't want to disrupt the systems. And of course, again, I'm broad stroking. I know every Asian American listening to this is not doing these things. I'm broad stroking. But at the same time, like, is there a way for you to, to engage now, to talk about it? If you have family dinners at your house and, you know, Auntie, Auntie Jane is making really racist comments, are you going to be 
the one who ignores her? Are you going to be the one who says, Auntie Jane, you know what? I don't appreciate you talking about talking like that at our dinner table. Could you please not use that language? Could you please make sure that when you're in my presence that you don't speak like that? And even if it starts a fight at your family, this is a worthy fight. <laughs> this is a, a right thing to do. So I, I love the ordinary spaces because we are all having these opportunities to intersect with people all day long. And it's an opportunity to speak up. And yes, we have to pick our battles. Yes, we have to use boundaries. Yes, we have to be wise. I'm not saying don't do all of those things. But what I'm saying is you have a voice, you have authority, you have opportunity. And so in your ordinary space, figure out what it looks like for you to be brave. And nobody will probably see most of the things that you do. And good for you, because we're not doing this for to be on social media and have everybody notice us. Like justice is not a trend. It is the heart of God. <laughs> so we have to journey past, you know, this sort of trend mentality and figure out in my ordinary space, how am I going to stand up and speak up for people who are going through difficult things right now? Yeah. Amen. And you you kind of touched on my second rapid fire question um, because I, I actually got a few of these messages in my DMs. Um, just, again, very well-meaning white allies who yeah. were like, you know what? I was raised in my household that racism ended a long time ago and it doesn't mm. exist anymore and mm. to not see race. And I've, I'm growing and I've learned all of this. And, you know, I'm so glad, but you know, they are kind of in fear of the backlash of talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Maybe they come from this, again, I'm broad stroking as well, um, mm -hmm. very white conservative um, household maybe, or maybe mm -hmm. that's just kind of their community or their church mm -hmm. community where it is very like, we don't talk about these issues or it's just propaganda or that kind of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying, obviously, that's not all white conservative churches but this is what happens a lot um, yes. pretty pretty often and so what would you say to the person who is and you kind of touched on it a bit already but yeah. I think just to bring it out some more like what would you say to the person who is listening to this you know they're a white man or white woman or, or just non-black uh, ally who mm -hmm. is feeling very passionate about this has never spoken out about it is kind of a, doesn't really like conflict doesn't really want to stir the pot <laughs> doesn't really want to have that thread of comments on their Facebook or that Instagram <laughs> that they know is yeah. just going to start an all-out war you yeah. know, um, and might face backlash from bringing these issues up, but is held back by that fear and maybe by that social, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Like that social kind of, uh, I don't want to say social distancing, but I guess you could say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just that yeah. social backlash yeah. um, that could take place. Yeah, I've had a lot of people call me in the last couple of weeks who are who are taking their first steps in this journey for that exact reason, just in tears. Like this person cussed me out of my DMs. You know, my family member called me this, that, and the other, and they're they're really torn up about it. Yeah. And I I would just say, gosh, I mean, this is tough work. I've been doing it for years. I've been gossiped about. I have been talked about. People accuse me of being a liberal leftist social justice warrior. I don't even know what this crap is. Yeah. Like, I don't know what you guys are talking about because right. I don't watch the news like that. I mean, I've had people call me names. I've had people approach me publicly and say crazy things. And it's just like, this goes along with the territory. So what guides me, and I hope this would be a help to you who are listening, is that I ask myself, do I value my image more than my integrity? And that guides me. So it's like I actually value my integrity in this space more than I do my image. So I know that there's going to be a loss of reputation for some. Some people who have thought like Ashley's a great pastor are going to suddenly think Ashley's, you know, a liberal leftist social justice warrior. She's a terrible pastor. Like that's how it's going to go. And it, it just is what it is. And I can't get around that. But what I value is putting my head down at nighttime, knowing I have integrity, knowing I said the thing that, thing that needed to be said and did the thing that needed to be done. And that matters to me more than managing my image. And so I know it is very difficult. Like fear can bound, bound, bind us into this place of like, I'm not going to speak out because I'm afraid of the backlash or what's going to happen or who's going to like me or not like me. And all that is part of supremacy. You've been taught to get in line and you've been taught that the highest form of living is people liking you. It's like, are you kidding me? Who can live like that? That's not even a fun way to live. And it's exhausting yeah. all that pretending and performing and, you know, doing things so that people will like you. It's like, no, you can, you're brave enough. You are strong enough. You are wise enough. You are unique enough to push past that and value integrity over image. And so I just encourage you to do it. Take one little step. And, and you don't have to fight with everyone. I don't even, 
respond anymore to most of that right. stuff. Unless I'm close to you, I'm just not having the conversation. It's like, good, leave, don't follow, I don't care. Like, bye. <laughs> but also I'm tender towards those of you who are at the beginning of it because I wasn't that way in the beginning and it was hard. Yeah. Um, but gosh, you just, you get good at it, you know, and you become a real, a true ally who can stand beside people and, and with integrity say, I'm here, I'm in this with you. And I mean that even though it's going to cost me personally, I want to make that sacrifice. Yeah. It's really crazy how, when you bring up an issue like this, like racial justice, you automatically get pegged into this liberal, <sighs> like super liberal, I don't know, like yes, demographic. And again, like, it's just, Exhausting, I, you know, ridiculous. I respect wherever, where anybody is, but it's just like, but it's the problem with it is that it's a form of gaslighting. Like, yes. okay, you're bringing up racial justice. You must be liberal or you're bringing up black lives matter. You must be liberal, this liberal, that, and yep. ungodly, whatever. And yep. so therefore I can no longer listen to your opinion because you are aligned politically as this. And for me, that was always mind blowing because I didn't realize that talking about justice and human life was a partisan issue. I just felt Come like on. it was a human rights issue. Uh-oh, and it's it. like, I've never, again, like you, it's like, I never said anything about my political affiliation or where I lean or anything like that, but you automatically get pegged into this. And so I think what's troubling is, and I said this in the last, last podcast, is the selectivity right yes. when it comes to certain issues that are deemed morally right uh when it comes to life um and other issues right. people are willing to vote for on those issues vote for people who support those issues they're willing to you know put in policy advocate online speak openly about it right yeah. when it comes to certain issues around life and what's moral but then when it comes to black lives and racial injustice all of the sudden this is not something all of a sudden this is not included in that like this yes. is something separate it's something uh that's propaganda and we don't want to look at it we're just going to say it's a sin issue but you wouldn't right. but if it was a if it was i'll just be blunt but if it was like an issue of abortion right mm-hmm. you wouldn't walk around saying let's not talk about abortion because it's just a sin issue just come on i'm not saying this is i'm just putting this out there right yeah that's right but when You're it's right. black lives all of a sudden let's not talk about the the face issue the issue that's at, at face let's it's it's sin right that's right so, i mean you were really saying some good stuff yes we can't we like that selectivity um mm-hmm. in in beliefs and it's just it's inconsistent and that's i think where it becomes problematic i think when we see in the church certain things being advocated but there's not the same regard for this area of life yes yes i'm with you 100 percent. yes yeah um okay and then <laughs> uh i guess lastly how does the gospel tie into racial justice? You're talking about all these things. I mean, you were preaching, um, but you're, you're you're not just saying this as an advocate for justice and an ally, but you're you guys have also pastored a church. Uh, mm-hmm. You've been a community outreach pastor, and so the gospel is very central to to what you do. And I know that of you. And for those who are listening, you know, how does all of that tie into the topic of racial justice? So a quick answer to this, because I mean, we could we could go from the Old Testament to the New and talk <laughs> right. about the issue of race. We really could. But the story I want to really highlight right now is I'm thinking of the Samaritan woman and how Jesus goes to this woman at the well and she is getting her water for her family or her household or whatever at noonday, which nobody goes in the desert at 12 o'clock to pick up their water. She's the only one there. And Jesus makes a detour from the work that he's doing with his disciples to go to, to meet with this Samaritan woman. And he sees her and no one of her race would have been spoken to by a Jew. No one of her race would have been spoken to by a rabbi. Yeah. And he goes by himself. So she's used to being taken advantage of. She's used to men, you know, trying to control her, her narrative. Very often we hear about her as being like a promiscuous woman, but the truth is, you know, um, because she's had five husbands, but the truth is women had no rights. So she's an abandoned woman. She is a widowed woman. She is a woman thrown away and discarded. She's not a promiscuous woman. Women had no right to divorce their husbands or leave them in this society and culture. So that's an important caveat here. And Jesus shows up for her regardless of her race, regardless of her gender and offers her living water and and offers her a new chance at life and and offers her redemption to this difficult story that she's lived. And so I see throughout scripture that regardless of the social context that Jesus was in, 
I see him reaching past race and reaching past gender and reaching past societal norms so that people would have been like, what are you doing? Why are you talking to this person? Why are you engaging with this person? Look at their race, look at their gender, look at their class. Yeah. And Jesus always just valued people as made in the image of God. And, and he valued people equitably. And I'm using this word equity a lot because sometimes we talk a lot about equality and I don't like that because I think if you hand an equal opportunity to someone like the Samaritan woman and then another young man who has like culture and history and all these great things behind him, guess who does better with the equal opportunity? The person who has the most resources, the person who has the most privilege, the person who has the most support does better. And so I like equity, which is raising people up into this place of honor and dignity. And so throughout scripture, from Old Testament to New, but that's just one of the examples I see God seeking to restore human value and dignity. And I see him saying, hey, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's nobody better and there's nobody worse. You all stand side by side next to Jesus. And I think we have to have and live with that revelation in mind. And so this really matters. Amen. On that note, I'm just going to let that sit uh, and sink in and leave on that note. <laughs> Ashley, thank you so, so much for this conversation. It is so important. Um, how can those who are listening stay connected with you and the work you're doing and grab your book and continue following all of this good stuff that you're preaching? Thank you. So I have, I'm most active, I would say on Instagram and it's at Ash Abercrombie. That's also my Twitter name. You can find me on Facebook as well. And then on my website, I have so many free resources, blogs, different things you can watch and read and download. And my website is ashabercrombie.org. And it would be an honor and a joy to connect with you. And thank you so much, Brittany, for having me. I just, I love you. You're such a remarkable woman. And this has been such a wonderful opportunity to catch up. So thank you. I love you too. I can't, yeah. When all this Corona dies down, we're going to grab our cup of coffee. Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks guys for listening until next time.